morning, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for Brother Darwin for giving us the privilege to come see y'all. We're glad to be here. I'd like to this morning briefly consider some points from the prophet Habakkuk. It's a short book, but there's a lot of information in it. We'll just be hitting a few points, and there's some things I've we've left out that we'd like to talk about but we'll just consider a few things hopefully it'll be a you know a comfort to us and exhortation this morning will be timely for us um, there's not really much known of the prophet the man Habakkuk his name signifies wrestler or embracer and it really it only occurs twice in the book that bears his name it is possible that he was a Levitical singer. We know this from chapter 3 and verse 19. But I think as we consider the message of the book, kind of, I, I guess, in a thematic fashion this morning, uh, I think we can consider the words of the prophecy really as kind of a personal message to us, or we should, as members of the Ecclesia and the one body of Christ in these last days. And I think all of us here this morning would not agree or would not disagree or doubt that we are indeed in the last days. The age that Habakkuk lived in was really a lot like the one we find ourselves in, where lawlessness and godlessness was pervasive and is today. And where the love of many, even those who had the truth, was waxing cold. Habakkuk was a man who loved the truth. He was a lover of the nation of Israel and the hope of Israel. And it, so he was really grieved by his surroundings and the apostasy that he saw in the Ecclesia, the people who had been divinely separated and guided. Yet he was shown the end of the matter, and he was given hope, something to hope and something to be encouraged about from Yahweh. And he was shown that sin would not prevail in the end as do the saints of all ages, but he had to come to understand that what he was experiencing and enduring was a trial, a trial of his faith. As we said, the book is brief, but there's a lot of wisdom to be gained by a short study of his words, or a close study of his words, rather. I, most of what I present to you this morning is, is I was, I've been done doing a personal study, a verse-by-verse study, and then some of the thoughts I will present have been gleaned from the expositor notes in the Green Book. H.P. Uh, Mansfield does note that the, the, the key verse and basic message of the prophecies is contained in chapter 2 and verse 4. Behold, which I'll read, Behold his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. He comments as follows on this verse. He says, These words are a complete Summary of the doctrine of the atonement. And indeed, all religion and revelation. And I read that statement, I thought, well, that's a pretty uh, sweeping statement. That's a pretty all-encompassing statement. And at first, it may seem like it's an exaggeration. But I think, upon careful consideration, if we really look at the message of the prophet, I think we'll find ourselves in agreement with what he says. First, in this verse here, we can see a sharp contrast is drawn. We see a soul that is lifted up, or a prideful soul. The Hebrew word means to be, to swell, 
So this is an individual that trusts in self as opposed to trusting in Yahweh. Such an individual is said to be not upright, and literally the word means not straight. So he's crooked and perverse in his ways. This is in contrast to the just who shall live by his faith. The just man is one who is lawful and he's righteous. He's living according to divine laws and precepts. He will live by his faith, which is to say he will live eternally. Of course, that is the, that's the end product of faith. Isn't that what faith is designed for? The end result of a faithful walk is to live eternally. Is it not faith which overcomes the world, which provides the victory? And we can, uh, a couple of references I have, 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9, 1 John 5, 4. We won't turn those up. It is significant that the Apostle Paul quotes this very verse in three instances. And in each location, he places a different emphasis. And again, I'm going to read these references. You're familiar with them. The first, the first place is in Romans 1.17 where we read, The just shall live eternally, is implied, I believe, by his faith. So I think here he emphasizes the fact that he shall live. And I think you know, em- emphasizing the ultimate destiny of the faithful. The next location is in Galatians 3.11. The just, or the justified, or upright, shall live by his faith. And here he draws attention to the means. I think if we look again at the context in Galatians 3, we'll see that the emphasis here is on the just, or the justification portion. Hebrews 10.38 is the next one. And we see here that the just shall live by his faith. And I think here we see that faith is emphasized the confident anticipation to the hope. And of course, this is the prelude to the great chapter on faith of Hebrews 11. The emphasis of the apostle, I think, is clear. I think if we look at all these and take some time later, maybe if you get a chance and look at these passages, we'll see that in the context bears this out. Of course, we are told in the scriptures as to faith that the just shall live, you know, along the regarding the just shall live by his faith, that an untried faith is worthless. It is the trial of the just and the upright that purges and purifies the character. And this is according to the divine formula, as we would read in Psalm 51.7 and also in Hebrews 9.14. The deity has provided us with all that is necessary to sustain us through our trials through the visions, visions and revelations which he has provided us. We, we read in Amos 3.7, Surely Adonai Yahweh will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Finally, the deity has shown us the glorious end of the matter so that we will not despair. He has given us signposts along the way to strengthen our faith. We are, therefore, or should have complete confidence in the sure fulfillment of his word, the sure word of prophecy. Let's just look at a couple of verses that demonstrate this. Uh, Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. These are, these are familiar verses uh, to us. 
And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And then James 1.12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So if we consider the reverse, you know, this verse implies, the implication of this verse is that he who does not endure a trial shall not receive the crown of life. And also, uh, you know, you might also refer to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. We won't turn that up. That's a verse, passage we're all familiar with where it speaks of the trial of our faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. But as we, back in Habakkuk, as we consider the prophecy of Habakkuk, I think we can see this same pattern. We have this in the, the sequential steps which all believers go through true believers will experience. And we see this in the first chapter of Habakkuk. We see the prophet's anguish and distress at the conditions and the wicked environment in which he found himself. And, and, you know, this very fact alone tells us a lot about the man, doesn't it? I mean, he was upset by the conditions, by the apostasy around him. So it is also a point for our self-examination. You know, are we comfortable in, in the situation we find ourselves now? I think you know, we can all answer that in the negative. We're not. We see um, you know, godlessness is, is rampant. There's no law, and things wax worse and worse. You know, A lover of the truth will be in distress when the sin power is dominant. And this is definitely the case with Habakkuk. He's not at ease. Uh, he doesn't appreciate the sinful conduct and so forth. This was Habakkuk's attitude. In fact, you know, the, the prophecy begins with the cry. He says, how long? Yahweh, how long? He asks. And it's interesting that Hebrew phrase that's used there occurs, this phrase, ad or ad anah, occurs 40 times in the Old Testament. Of course, that's an important number, isn't it? It's a number that signifies trial and probation. So if we were to outline the prophecy... Habakkuk, we can see it falls into three major sections which roughly follow the chapter divisions. In the first chapter, through the first verse of the second, we see the frustration of Habakkuk with the conditions, the evil and sinful conditions existing in the ecclesia of his day. This was a trial of his faith, and it was a time of apathy and indifference to the truth, and it was also a time when the menace of Babylon was threatening and looming on the horizon. The second chapter, Habakkuk is comforted through divine revelation. He's shown that the triumph of the wicked is a temporal situation. He was told, you know, he was shown that he had to persevere, that this was not going to continue forever. And in the final chapter, you know, it's really a classical song. It's a model song, and I'm, I like to call it the victory hymn or the victory song. That's the name I give it. I, I think it's. You know, it's beautiful, it's moving. Of course, it tells us a lot about, you know, what is we believe and hope to be a part of shortly. He was a faithful watchman to Israel. He was shown in this victory psalm that 
he would be strengthened through Yahweh in that day, and he would rejoice in Yahweh and joy in the Elohim of his salvation. First, let's consider briefly the trial that Habakkuk experienced. As we've already noted, the prophecy begins with the cry and a plea of how long. Habakkuk was frustrated and grieved with the conditions of the ecclesia. <clears throat> Verse 2 reads, O Yahweh, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. The word violence in this verse is from a root meaning to mistreat. Strong has, by implication, wrong, and by metonymy, unjust gain. Unjust gain. Now, I thought it was interesting. Does that not sound like our day that we live in? When men will stop at nothing to satisfy the love of money and material desires, and it's all that fills our news with the financial calamity that's taking place. The Apostle Paul declares the love of money is the root of all evil. And are we not seeing that borne out today? The truth of that statement. Unjust gain was the rule of his day as it is in ours. Habakkuk was crying out of this violent situation. Certainly, and I think we can, there's little doubt that Habakkuk was suffering personally for his witness for the truth. I'm sure those unfaithful members of the Ecclesia did not care to hear Habakkuk, what he had to say. He was a nuisance. It would have made him uncomfortable. I'm sure he suffered for what he, his stand for the truth. In verse 3 we read, interesting here we have, I'm going to read verse 3 to you. Why dost thou show me iniquity? Cause me to behold grievance for spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Note the interesting progression of six negative traits in this verse. For six brings to mind the number of man and the number of flesh. I think here we have you know, the fruits of the flesh which bear, you know, bear sin, bring forth sin. Uh, just a couple of points on these words. Iniquity. This word, I'm, these definitions that I'm going to be presenting are, are from Strong's concordance. Um, iniquity, to exert oneself in vain. Nothingness, vanity. Now, is this not descriptive of the wages of sin? They end up in nothingness, in vanity, and in the, in the grave. Grievance, to toil or work severely. Wearing effort, hence worry. You know, is that not what the pursuit of riches causes? Worry. You know, the, the wise man wrote, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. You know, money problems has caused a lot of people to lose sleep. Spoiling, violence, and ravage. The pursuit of riches brings violence. And that's just evident all around us. Violence, the same, this is the same word in verb that we brought your attention to in verse 2, which means to maltreat. And, the, and interesting, that, that word occurs six times in the prophecy of Habakkuk. Strife by, uh, is a contest and by implication, controversy. And this same word is used in Exodus 17.7, which I thought it was interesting because that's where, I'll, just, I'll read that verse, you don't have to turn there. This is in the incident 
of uh, Massa and Mirabai. It was also when they were attacked by Amalek. You'll remember the chapter. But verse 7 reads, And he called the name of the place Massa and Mirabai because of the chiding. It's the same word there. It's right. Chiding of the children of Israel because they tempted Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? So this was really the downfall. This was kind of a turning point for the ecclesia in the wilderness. This is when it says later on that they provoked Yahweh to wrath. So the ecclesia, it was as if the ecclesia in the wilderness and the ecclesia in Habakkuk's day was acting with impunity. Is Yahweh not among us? It's like they did what they wanted uh, and like they were getting away with it and nobody knew. But of course Yahweh was aware. The next word is contention, which means to quarrel. Of course, that's just a manifestation of the flesh. I mean, that's, there's a lot of verses you could go to that bear that out. So anyway, these were the circumstances the prophet Habakkuk had to endure. How did the Ecclesia come to such a sad, sad state? How had it fallen so far? Verse 4 provides the answer. Therefore, the law is slacked. I'm going to read to you this verse out of the complete Jewish Bible. Therefore, Torah is not followed. Justice never gets rendered because the wicked fence in the righteous. This is why justice comes out perverted. So here lies the root of the problem, brethren. And it, it, it has been, anytime the ecclesia falls away, this is always the root of the problem. They had gotten away from the influence. The law was not influencing their life. They weren't reading it. They weren't studying it. Studying it. It was not a practice for their life. It had become feeble in its influence. And the only way that happens is because it wasn't read anymore. You know, Brother Tommy gave us an excellent lesson this morning. But what was the law designed to do? It was designed to make sin appear exceeding sinful. So when they got away from that, sin became the opposite of that, became palatable to them. But Yahweh has an answer for the prophet. Sin and lawlessness will not go unpunished. And just as importantly, virtue will not go unrewarded. And we, we read this in verse 5 of the first chapter. Behold ye among the heathen regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. Now, the Apostle Paul cites this verse in Acts 13.41, showing the dual application, I believe, of this prophecy. The that is, the Babylon of Habakkuk's day foreshadowed mystery Babylon or Daniel's fourth beast, which destroyed Israel in AD 70. And the final manifestation of such is yet, in the Gogian manifestation, is still yet to destined to devour and break in pieces, which is from Daniel 7, 19. So the balance of this chapter 1 deals with the terrible description of this nation of Babylon who was to inflict punishment upon Israel. And there's, you know, they're not, if you read, you know, if you look down through those verses, we won't read them now. We can see that, you know, it's not nice. These people were not nice, the Babylonians. They're described as bitter and hasty, terrible and dreadful. You know, it's, it's probably worth pointing out that uh, in verse 7, um, let me read this verse for you also and while you compare it with your King James verse 7 fearsome and dreadful they are their rules and strength 
come from themselves. And really, actually, they is really better rendered he in this verse. And also themselves read of himself. So why is that? It makes a difference, I think, a little bit in the way we would understand the verse. And why is that significant? I think it, it's significant because we see in the Babylonian oppressor an attitude of extreme arrogance. This speaks of an absolute dictator foreshadowing the Gogian autocrat of the last days. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was certainly, he filled that role and fit that mold. But he was a type of what is to come. In verse 8, we have a figure, the figures of the leopard, the wolf, and the eagle. These are all applied to Babylon, and they are also all symbols of Rome. And I've got some verses, uh, of course, Rome we know, or Babylon, rather, typifies the Rome of the latter days. And I've got some verses, if you wish to write them down, Deuteronomy 28, 49, Revelation 13, 2, <laughs> Jeremiah 5, 6, John 10, 12, and Acts 20, 29, that bears out where we can see those, uh, those figures there of the leopard, wolf, and eagle applied to Rome as well as Babylon. And I've got those verses. If you can read them all. In verse 12 we read, Art thou not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. And, and the RV version, margin, has who diest not. So it's applying that to Yahweh. Which it gives a little different understanding to it. Who diest not. O Yahweh, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. So I think this verse teaches us that Habakkuk understood the covenant name, Yahweh Elohim, he who will be mighty ones. In the verse, Yahweh is called mine holy one, which is a title that is used to show or that vindicates the righteousness of Yahweh. We can see a complete contrast with its usage here, this, in other words, mine holy one, in this verse and in three, chapter 3 and verse 3. So you see here it's to punish, and in chapter 3 and verse 3 it's to save. This also illustrates an important principle of the name. He will by no means clear the guilty, but will judge and correct his people. It demonstrates the goodness and severity of Yahweh. Just as Yahweh ordained the Assyro-Babylonian for judgment and correction of his people, he has ordained the Gogian autocrat of the future to judge and correct so that he, or Yahweh, might be vindicated and thus magnifying his name. Ezekiel 38, 23. His prayer, completed in the first chapter, Habakkuk waits patiently and confidently for Yahweh's answer. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So here we see Habakkuk was a faithful watchman to Israel. He was set upon the tower, which means a fenced place. We read in Proverbs 18.10, The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. This was Habakkuk's safety. 
He manifested the principles of the name in his life and therefore had nothing to fear. Yahweh does provide an answer to Habakkuk. He was to write or engrave the answer. In other words, it was not to be erased. And we read this in verse 2. Whoever heard it intelligently could run to the safety of its hope. He was also told that it would occur at the appointed time, we see in verse 3. From this we realize that there is a set time for Yahweh's purpose to be fulfilled. There is no true delay in his purpose. Although his saints who greatly desire it will continue to ask, as Habakkuk did, how long? So as we survey the balance of chapter 2 through verse 19, and we look over its verses, and again, I'm not going to take the time to read them right now, but we can determine Yahweh's answer to Habakkuk and all who await on Yahweh patiently. The persecutor will be punished. Note the characteristic of the sin power in verses 5 and 6. He transgresseth, transgresseth, by wine. This is not only natural drunkenness, but symbolizes false doctrine, the false doctrine of Babylon. So it has a religious component. I think it also represents the political and religious doctrines of the latter day Babylon. The Babylonian is represented as being drunken with success. He is also proud. The word means elated, hence arrogant. We, we saw that uh, indicated in the first chapter as well. This word is only used here and in Proverbs 16, 18, where it's translated haughty. I think this is very much a description of the, of the, you know, the image of Nebuchadnezzar when it stands. It's very haughty and very proud and arrogant just prior to his destruction. This is a characteristic of Gog also in the Assyrian of the latter days. Now I want to look at a related passage here and you keep your finger here in the back and turn back with me to Isaiah 14. It's pretty closely related. We're going to read from verse 12. I'm going to read 12 through 15. Of course, again, this is Isaiah was writing. This is a prophecy of Babylon, but it also is very much a latter-day prophecy as well. Really, really 13 and 14 go together. Isaiah 14, we'll read... In verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? Now note here the self-exaltation, the proud and the arrogant attitude. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven, all the eyes. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And really, that's not unlike the description of the man of sin in the, in the letter of the Thessalonians. He, he sets himself up as a god in the temple of God. So this, we see this. And of course, they really are they're very closely related. Continue down at verse 22. For I will rise up against them, saith Yahweh of armies, and cut off from Babylon the name, the remnant, and son, and nephew, saith Yahweh. I will also make it a possession for the bittern and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the besom or the broom of destruction, saith Yahweh of armies, 
Yahweh of armies has sworn, saying, Surely as I have fought, so shall it come to pass. As I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. So we can see from the testimony of Isaiah that the cutting off of Babylon, haughty Babylon, is coupled with the destruction of the Assyrian. Compare also, I want you to compare the language of verse 22 we just read over, where it says, I will rise up against them, saith Yahweh of hosts. And note the name of the divine title used in these verses is of Yahweh of armies. And we need to think about, you know, what, at what time is that manifestation a reality in the earth? I will rise up against them, saith Yahweh of armies. And compare that with verse 7 back over in Habakkuk 2, where we read, Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shall be for booties unto them, or a spoil unto them? Now who is this that rises up and vexes the Babylonian oppressor? It is certainly the resurrected and glorified Christ's body. Habakkuk said that they appear suddenly. I think this is an interesting description for the word comes from a root meaning to open the eyes or a wink. Now when I read that when I, in the concordance I immediately thought of what the apostle said in 1 Corinthians 15 52 he says in a moment in the twinkling of an eye or in a wink at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed also uh, let's look at hold your finger here in the back and let's look quickly at Isaiah 47 9 on this theme of suddenly it's worth turning up 47 9 Speaking of the judgment of this oppressor, but these two things shall come to thee in a moment, or suddenly, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. And also, let's look at Psalm 6, verse 10. Along this same line. Psalm 6 verse 10. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Back in Habakkuk 2. The chapter contains five woes that are pronounced against the persecutor and the oppressor. There is woe to pride and greed in verses 6 through 8. There is woe to covetousness and materialism in verses 9 to 11. There is woe to power politics and ruthlessness in verses 12 to 14. There is woe to religious superstition and error, verses 15 to 17. And finally, woe to idolatry and popery in verses 19 to 20. And all these characteristics, brother, we can see these are all highly descriptive of the image when it stands in its totality and entirety. 
this system, you know, and the fourth beast, also represented in the fourth beast, you know, is described as dreadful and terrible, and will have all these characteristics. In verse 11, we read, For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Or in my margin it says, witness or witness against it. If we consider the context and the time frame, a time when the saints are awakened in resurrection to vex and destroy the oppressor, we can comprehend the meaning of this verse. The stone is a title of Yahshua. He is the shepherd and stone of Israel in Genesis 49, 24. He is the stone of Zechariah 3, 9, upon which are engraven seven eyes. He is the stone of Psalm 118.22, which the builders refused and has become the head of the corner. He is the stone and stumbling of stone of stumbling and rock of offense to Israel of Isaiah 8.14. He is also the stone that Adonai Yahweh lays in Zion, a tried stone, which he has already been a tried stone a precious corner and a sure foundation, which is in Isaiah 28, 16. And finally, he is the stone cut out without hands who will witness against the image by smiting it to pieces as recorded in Daniel 2, 34. But what of the wall which the stone cries out of? The wall, the stone is a part of the wall or the other way around. The wall really is part of the stone, technically. I think this is none other than a symbol of the redeemed. Let's look at Revelation 21, 12. Where we read, And had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And we can also refer to verses 14 and 18 of that same chapter. The crying out of the wall, which we read there in verse 11 of Habakkuk 2, I believe we can also link to verse 1 of chapter 3, where we read, you know, the prayer that begins, begins the victory hymn is a shigionoth cry, which we'll talk about that in just maybe a little bit more here in a minute. Okay, back in Habakkuk 2. The end of these five woes will ultimately bring to pass the saying of Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Five woes we noted in this chapter. This verse here, or a similar phrase, occurs five times in the scriptures. Five is a number we associate with grace. That Yahweh's glory or name fills the earth is the purpose of grace, if we think about it. It's the purpose of grace. It's worth mentioning at this point that in these five occurrences of this similar phrase is seen a progression of the development of the name. So hold your finger there in Habakkuk 2 and look with me to Numbers 14.21. Of course, we all that's a memory verse. We all know, but... Let's look at it, um, because I think we can, to make the point here, first we have, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh. So here, 
the one great original source of all things, the fountain of glory, is the first occurrence of this phrase. As truly as I live, or Yahweh lives. Now, the next occurrence is in Psalm 72, 19. Let's look there together. Psalm 72, 19. Millennial hymn. Where we read, And blessed be His glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. Now, amen, amen means so be it. Yahweh's purpose is doubled and therefore made sure. So we have a, a double. We go from a one to a two. Next, Isaiah 6, 3. Let's look at that one together. We have a similar phrase that occurs at the end here. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So here we have holiness thrice repeated. Three, so we have a progression from two to three. Three is the number of resurrection. In the time when Yahweh of armies, which Isaiah refers to, is to be manifest in the earth. Three can also signify perfection or completion. Next, let's go to Isaiah eleven nineteen. It's a few pages over, and we read eleven nine. Not nine. There's not nineteen verses. Eleven nine. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. The holy mountain is none other than the exalted nation of Israel. You can refer back to chapter two and verse two of Isaiah. Four is the number signifying the hope and glory of Israel. So four is the number we would associate with the holy mountain or Israel. Then the final occurrence is back in Habakkuk 2, where we read, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Now this Hebrew word knowledge means to know by experience. The glory of Yahweh is then a reality in the earth. Grace associated with the number five comes to bear fruit in the manifestation of the name. Now, let's look together at the purpose of grace is realized. Let's look at a reference in Psalm 84. We're going to read 9 through 12. I guess the point I want to make from this passage and another one we'll look at is that grace and glory are coupled together. And in Psalm 84, verse 9, we read, Behold... O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For Yahweh, God, is a sun and shield. Yahweh will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly, O Yahweh of hosts. Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. And then also, 2 Corinthians 4.15. Let's turn that one up. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound or grow into the glory of God. 
Now, brothers and sisters, let us attempt to connect in our minds the promised glory, the uh, ultimate end of grace, the wonderful message of the Spirit through the prophet Habakkuk, which we've just considered, considered a few points, to the emblems that are on the table before us this morning. In doing this, we will consider a portion of the glorious victory psalm of Habakkuk 3. But at this time, let's go ahead and have our memorial hymn. Together, we will sing hymn 107. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Hebrews and recalling the victory in roll call of the faithful in chapter 11, writes the following in the opening verses of Hebrews 12. Wherefore seeing also, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the stake, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, we can recall Habakkuk's message in the beginning of this letter where he said, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. We, we go through chapter 1, we know presented with a trial of his faith. The trial of Habakkuk's faith may be likened to that of our Lord who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself and endured the shame of the stake. Habakkuk, in the glorious victory psalm of chapter 3, speaks of the joy that was set before our Lord when he writes... In verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigionoth. Shigionoth is from a root meaning to cry aloud. It can be a cry of trouble or a cry of joy. Most certainly, here it is the latter. This word only occurs twice, or the form, this, the form of this word also occurs in Psalm 7. We're not going to go there, but I think in Psalm 7, a different form of the word is used there. We see the suffering Messiah. And in the victory psalm here before us, back at 3, we have the Shigionoth cry. And the word here is, is in the feminine. I think it's also a cry, you know, it's, it's also related to the cry the bride will make with Christ in that day. Be that as it may, this cry, or this psalm, represents a time soon to come when Jesus will come to possess that which is rightfully his and was promised to him by his Father. And this was, you know, certainly a part of the joy that was set before him. Time will not permit us to consider this victory psalm of Habakkuk in any detail. To summarize, it is none other than the march of the cherubim from the wilderness of the south, from the location of the judgment in Sinai, to take possession of the promised land with Joshua, the greater Joshua, as in the days of old. 
In the process, the nations are to be threshed, and all forms of human authority are to be laid prostrate in the dust. It is to be a time of great joy and glory for the Lord Jesus. He will not be suffering the shame and the hatred of his fellow, his nation, as he did at his first advent. Also, the saints will suffer or enjoy this glory and joy with him in that day. It is also a day of anger against those who oppose the divine will. This was the joy set before our Lord, for which he endured the worst form of suffering. And this is what is emblemized upon the table before us this morning. And it is our duty, as we memorialize and consider these emblems, to remember this. And you know what our Lord has called upon us to do is nothing that he himself has not done to a much greater degree to endure our trials and to persevere for the truth's sake to the end. We see in the bread a body which is broken for us and providing an atoning sacrifice, our covering. We must therefore live by faith as Habakkuk instructed us. Live by faith in this. And really that amounts to that. It's a simple phrase. It's three short words. But you know, think about what all it entails to live by faith. In the blood of the wine, the symbol of the wine in the wine is a symbol of his life blood poured out. So in this, we know it's a symbol that, that represents his dedication. It was a life dedicated or poured out. And it also demonstrated what the flesh was worthy of. It demonstrates how the flesh must be denied. And the flesh is worthy of death. He has called upon us to think upon these things as we remember him. We are called upon to deny the ungodly environment in which we live in. And Habakkuk has given us an example of how to do that. Certainly, our, you know, to the greatest degree our Lord did. This one we must do by self-examination, comparing ourselves against his example that we have revealed to us in the Word, in which we must not allow to become slacked among us. We must not allow the influence of the Word to become feeble. We cannot neglect the time spent in the Word and uh, remembering and observing this service as we do. I think as we, you know, when we consider the memorial service and we think upon our weekly assembly, I think we can see the wisdom in it, how these things are brought to mind, which which we could, could slip if we were not careful. In 1 Corinthians 11, this is where we're going to read the memorial account. But I want to first, I want to go over to verse 31 on this regarding self-examination. You know, examining a self-examination, I think, if a saint does not examine himself, 
he's in danger at the judgment seat. Because if we don't examine ourselves, if we are not a harsh critic to ourselves and examine ourselves against the word, uh, you know, it's, it's not healthy spiritually for us to neglect that. We have to do that. And the apostle tells us here in verse 31, he says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. So I think if we think about that and what that entails, and we think about the wisdom of the memorial, what we're, what we're memorializing, uh, it brings to mind the duty, and also it, it, it's, uh, it's encouraging. It gives courage. For the joy, because the joy that was set before our Lord is set before us as well, if we will but persevere to the end. You know, Habakkuk wrote in verse 18 of chapter 3, Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh, and I will joy in the Elohim of my salvation. So this was this was very much what sustained Habakkuk through his trials. Is he, he realized as bad as it was around him that Yahweh, the sin would not prevail in the end. It was a temporal thing. And that's where, and really that's what the emblems remind us of. They should. He says, you know, take of these emblems until I come. So this is not a, this is a temporal situation. Until I come, we memorialize, you know, our Lord and our Savior. With that, we'll read the account in the, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. So at this time, let's stand and, uh, if I could, I would, I would call on Brother Paul, if you would offer a prayer for the bread, please.